Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Where's the Funding podcast with your host, Michelle McKenzie. On this podcast, we spark conversations that demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. I am very excited about the guest that I have today. I've been trying to get this lady on this podcast for a long time now, and I am so happy that the moment has finally come. I would like for you to meet my guest today. Adenike Sharif, who's one of the principals behind Future Africa. Adenike, please introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's such an honor to be here and to be on this podcast today. My name is Adenike Sharif. I currently work as principal at Future Africa. Um, that means that it's my job to find amazing companies for us to invest in, guide them through our investment process, as well as manage our community of co-investors all over the world. So Adenike, there are some pretty notable names behind Future Africa. Tell us a little bit about what Future Africa is and the people who are behind it, including yourself, of course. Absolutely. So we're an early stage fund here in Africa, investing in companies who are solving Africa's most difficult problems. And that's the crux of it for us. We, we know that there are a lot of problems in Africa and we want to back the innovators who will creatively solve these problems through market-driven innovation. Um, Future Africa did not start out as a fund. That's a fact that a lot of people don't actually know. We had initially wanted to support founders in many different ways by providing them with resources, connecting them to investors, and just being angel investors ourselves. But we very quickly realized that there was a huge gap at the seed stage and it wasn't easy for really amazing companies who are doing great stuff to get funded at the earliest part of their venture so we decided to take the responsibility of funding these companies um like i said the whole vision kind of came together in motion but e aboyeji who is our general partner founded led and co-founded two of Africa's largest startups, you know, Andela and Flutterwave. And based on his experiences doing that, he put together a stellar team of people who were passionate about backing entrepreneurs. And the key thing for all of us who are involved in Future Africa is that we are all operators ourselves. We've all worked in tech companies prior to joining Future Africa. So we understand on a deep level the challenges that entrepreneurs face and we're able to provide the help, support, and of course, capital that they need. So this is a stellar A-team that has been assembled for this task. Now, you mentioned helping to solve some of Africa's major challenges. Funding, of course, is one of the major challenges. As you mentioned, when Future Africa started, it wasn't the intent for it to be a fund, but that quickly became sort of the forefront of what Future Africa would do because it's a very strong need. How did you go about um, raising the funds for the Future Africa Fund? Yes, it's actually a funny story. We had wanted to take the approach of, you know, traditional approach. And we, like I said, you know, we had done some angel investments over the years and we planned to sell some of our positions. 
in these companies where what investors call secondaries. So that means that um, if you bought equity in a company in the very earliest days, when the company raises future rounds and there's a bit of competition and people trying to get into the round, you can sell some of the shares that you bought earlier on to other private investors. So we had planned to do that for some of our holdings, but it didn't quite work as anticipated because COVID hit. Another thing that we tried to do was raise funding the traditional way, which was, you know, set up a 10-year fund, get funding from DFIs, family offices and the likes, but that didn't work too well either. Not because of anything, like I said, COVID hit, so there was a lot of certainty in the world. And the last thing a lot of people wanted to do was invest in Africa. The whole world was shutting down. People were being super careful. Nobody knew what was going to happen. So it was mostly just, yeah, this sounds interesting, but we're unable to commit right now. On the other hand, we saw and knew that there were a long line of amazing companies that required funding. We had been in touch with a couple of them. We had committed to funding them, thinking that you know we would be able to make the money off the sale of the secondary and wide cash. But as the weeks went by, it became evident that we would be unable to do so. And so I had an idea. I said, people are always asking us to send them interesting companies that we see because they want to invest in startups, right? What if we pulled a bunch of people, of these people together and created what's called a syndicate? We had done that a few times in the past, but just in a very ad hoc manner. And then the funds to invest in the companies. And everyone was like, yeah, that could work in theory. But remember, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Not everybody might be interested in putting down cash that they should be saving or storing up. But, you know, I was able to convince everybody to try for whatever it was worth. And so we put together an article, put out the article, ask interested people to fill a form. And we had over 200 people fill that. And then it suddenly started to look really possible. So we sent them details about the investment, um, worked with angelists in the US to set up all the legal entities that would um, run the syndicates on. And, you know, we sent a deal to everyone. And in two days, we were able to raise $838,000 for a company. Our targets had been In two days. Yes, in two days. And, you know, you just showed us what was possible. Everyone was like, I would love to see more companies. And so I had to have a very, you know, interesting conversation with the team. Like, hey, we could, um, we could choose to do this as a side thing and think, oh, we're going to raise the fund. Or we could actually look at this as a, veritable stream of investment and spearhead something new, community-based investment. At the time, it wasn't, it wasn't a very popular thing to do. Mm-hmm. And we were actually one of the first VC firms in the world to have its own investment uh, community. Now it's fairly 
common. But so, and you know, the whole team said, well, you know, for if you're raising a fund, the way you um, survive is that your LPs, that's the limited partners, the people who invest in the fund, pay management fees. And that's what used to run operations and such. So the question was, how do we run operations for this? This is going to take a lot of time. And I was like, what if we made this a member-based community? That way, people who see the value will pay for it, and they get the benefit of seeing up to 20 deals a year, co-investing with us, getting access to the best companies on the continent. And even though people were skeptical, again, they let me try it. And so far, that has led to us having over 300 investors in our community of um, co-investors. So that's a brief summary of the investment story. And then as time went on, we actually were able to set up the fund, although it's a bit different from what a traditional fund looks like. It's called a rolling fund. And we're able to actually receive commitments from limited partners or people interested in being limited partners every quarter. It's very flexible. People don't have to wire in all the money at once. And we're able to um, plan our deployment schedules on a quarterly basis. So what's the size of the fund now? So there's no specific size. But so far, since um, March 2020, when we started doing this, we've deployed over $3.5 million dollars to companies here on the continent. That is awesome. It seems as if you have a knack for convincing people to do things that they're not so sure about. <laughs> seems ah! like you have a great strategy for being able yeah. to convince people to let loose of money that they seem to want to hold tight. Um, you might need to share those strategies, but we'll talk about that offline. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like sometimes it's just that when people expect things not to work, the trick is to convince them that since they think it's not going to work, they have nothing to lose by trying it. True. True, true, <laughs> true. Except if they're, you know, thinking of, okay, at what size am I coming in? And sometimes, like you said, they don't have to come in high. You can come in low, see how it goes, and then build your confidence after the first yeah. one. Also, the good thing about our community is you're not obligated to do anything. So you could just pay your membership fee of $1,000 every year, which checks out to about $50 per, per deal because we try to present 20 companies within a year. And so for a lot of people, $50 to get access to like a proper research report on the company, live question and answer with the founder and, you know, interaction with the rest of our team is not a huge price for them to pay. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. So tell me, so the members are in the community, they get all of this information and then they make the decision that they want to invest individually or they put their money in like a syndicate pot for whoever else in the community wants to invest in that company. Yeah, so the way it works is that we'll give you all of this information, give you some time to digest it, post it to a live question and answer with the founder, and then we will send you a link. It's pretty straightforward. All you have to do is, if you're interested, click that link to do what's called a commitment. And once you commit, you'll be expected to wire in your phone within two to three weeks. 
but it's not just you. We're pulling capital from everybody who is interested within the community mm -hmm. into what is called special purpose vehicle. So you get an agreement, a legal agreement, detailing how much of that you own and all of that. So who, who would you say should be a part of this community? I'd say if you're interested in diversifying your asset class, um, historically, VC has been very tilted towards high net worth, people who you know, have millions of dollars in their accounts because of the high risk, which is understandable. But we've made it so that with $2,500, you can make a small bet on a company. Now, for the type of people that invest, which is young professionals in Africa and in the diaspora, $2,500 is not money that is going to wreck them if they lost it. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. You hear y'all? If you if two thousand five hundred dollars won't wreck you, you have the opportunity to invest yeah. in up and coming companies on the continent. So think about it. Check your accounts, and you might want to head over to FutureAfrica.com and be a part of this community. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, no. Go so ahead. That's Anita. one category. That's one category. You know, people who have deep professional expertise and are looking for ways to share their knowledge. One thing that is missing in the game is being able to say that I've actually invested in companies. I understand how these things work. So I'm qualified to give you, you know, advisory guidance. And that's another advantage of the community, right? In Africa, we're very community-based, very community-focused. You know, there's even a saying that Children are raised by communities, not necessarily the parents. So we're just transferring the same philosophy mm. to start up investing. Where we have this community of over 300 people. Some have been working in the bank for decades. Some are working in oil and gas. Some, you know, are university professors. And they have networks, knowledge that can be beneficial to the company. So I would say, you know, investing is for anybody. If you have some cash, you want to learn, and you also want to back companies, you want to give back. Not, you know, it's very risky. So financial returns can be promised, but it's definitely worth it to um, um, back companies in this. But the manner. rewards could be worth it if it works out. Yes, definitely. So, you know, I like this trend that I'm seeing of sort of democratizing um, who is an investor and who has access to be able to invest through this platform that you've created as well as what Start Engine is doing, where it's allowing yeah. just regular everyday people who, like you say, they have some extra money and if they lose it, it's not going to wreck them. Being able to get in on the game early pre-IPO so that if that company really scales up and succeeds and does well, there is a big, they kind of get access to what the, the traditional investors get access to when they invest early in a company. And I think that's a great trend mm -hmm. to make investment more accessible to more people. Yep, absolutely.
WTF listeners, have you ever listened to an episode and felt like you wanted more? Or felt like there was a question that I didn't ask that you want to know more about? I am starting a listener community so that you get to ask guest questions about things that you want to learn more about. Some of you might not know this, but I spent 10 years at a foundation selecting and awarding grants. And during that time, I noted some key mistakes that grant applicants make repeatedly. Earlier this year, I co-created a grant writing course based on my observations to add value and help business and social entrepreneurs like you learn key grant writing skills to help you move from rejection to acceptance by increasing your chances of winning grants to launch or grow your businesses. When you join my community, you get the following. Two months free access from the time you sign up to my grant writing course, a $220 value. The course includes six individual modules that will walk you through grant writing, grant review, and the post-award process. You also get notice of funding opportunities to apply before grant deadlines close. You get discount access on new courses when they are launched and the opportunity to beta test courses before they're launched. You also get access to master classes where lots of knowledge gems will be dropped. If there are topics that you are interested in learning more about, let us know and we will find a speaker who can come to the community and address those questions for you. What are you waiting for? Join now. Use the link in the show notes or visit agazella.com to sign up. So tell me a little bit more about the types of companies that you, that Future Africa tends to invest in. I know that you have a fairly impressive portfolio of companies. How does Future Africa identify Mm -hmm. investable companies and what do you look for in the companies that you invest in? Absolutely. So like I said, the fundamental piece of it is that they are mission-driven companies. That's non-negotiable, you know. We don't have the luxury to just build companies for the sake of building them or for the sake of making a profit. You actually have to be looking at solving a problem that people face. We like to say Africa's challenges are also Africa's biggest opportunities. You have to be mission-driven. Two, they have to be led by a founder who actually not only has deep expertise, but is deeply interested in solving the problem and, you know, with evidence that shows that. And we've actually come up with a model that shows, you know, that we, a rubric rather that we use to assess these companies. It's called TD3. C stands for talent. Um, at the very earliest stages, we are mostly investing in the founder's dream and ambition. And I'll give you an example. Um, in 2018, we met a really smart young scientist who said that, you know, uh, his biggest problem was that, well, a huge problem he saw was that there's no genomic data on Africans. In the US, you have like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and you have like this whole data bank for genomics. And when they're developing drugs and all of that, they can use that data. But there's no African equivalent, which means that diseases that um, specifically affect Africans like 
malaria or sickle cell, you know. It's like you're describing 54 gene. Yes, I am. You know, go on for years without being, um, you know, there's no medicines developed. We don't get vaccines for them. And when you ask like big pharma, they say they simply don't have the genomic data. And they're also not willing to invest the time and resources into getting that data. And so he set out to solve that problem. At the time, a lot of people said that it seemed like a wild goose chase. You know what I mean? Mm. How are you going to buy data from Africans? But we gave him a small check. And now I think he recently raised, I mean, this was last year, two years ago, but they recently raised 19 million and they've become one of the largest. Wait, say, say that number again. 19, one nine, 19, 19 million. million. Your last grades. That, that, that was, that was because there was a visionary founder who said, look, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's why it's important. So, so talent is something we always look out for because we know that sometimes ventures fail, but you can never go wrong with investing in people. You know, they will always go on to build something really amazing. So that's definitely the most important piece, the people that we invest in. Then we have data. Then we have data. Then we have data, which is, um, you know, in every industry, in every country, there's data that points to gaps that exist or problems that exist and just show what needs to be done. A very fair example of that is here in Nigeria, over the past 30 years, the value of the Naira has consistently been on a downward spiral. And the question that we had was, how do we make it easy for people to preserve their wealth? Not everybody has the luxury of having a family office in the US or in the UK that makes investments on their behalf. How does the average young person um, grow their wealth and preserve their wealth. Uh, the, that was the beginning of our wealth tech thesis. And we, you know, in answer to that, we backed companies like Bamboo, which gives Africans access to the global stock markets. Think of it as Robin Hood for Africa. Mm-hmm. We backed um, Rise West, which helps people invest in US real estate. U.S. Uh, stocks, euro bonds, and such, and then Shaka as well, which gives people access to the stock market. So that's just an example of data. We also have design. So it's not enough to know a problem. It's not enough to have a solution. You have to be thinking, how is my solution specifically designed to solve the problem? If you're coming at it to say, oh, I have a pure e-commerce day, and just like Amazon is in the US, you have to pay online and then you have your goods delivered. What that tells me is that you don't really understand the markets that you're in because it's a low trust market. Nobody pays for anything online here. Mm-hmm. People pay on, on delivery. So just- <laughs> I want to make sure that it actually yeah. comes. Yeah. Exactly. So um, it's how your solution is designed to. Solve the problem because most times it's, the solution is great, but if it's not prob- properly designed, you're gonna face problems. So I've mentioned talent, 
I mentioned data, I mentioned design, and the last one is distribution. Um, we, it's not about building castles in the air and building things that are very fancy, you know, having the best tech, but at the end of the day, nobody uses it. If you're saying you're solving difficult problems, it's important that people are actually using what you have um, created. So you have to think of how it gets to the user. How are you going to distribute it? How are they going to use it? So that's just what we look out for. So in everything that is pitched, not everybody hits all four, admittedly, but at least you should have two out of the four. And that helps us make a fair assessment on whether or not we can proceed with discussing. And most of the time, I'm very happy to give feedback to say, hey, we think you should think about this too, or we, we think you should think about that too, you know, in order to grow and uh, progress. Yeah, that feedback is really important because my next question was going to be to ask, well, who should apply for Future Africa funding? And now that you've talked about sort of the rubric that you use, so even if there's an entrepreneur right now who has a brilliant idea for something that he or she wants to do that could be a potential game changer and they don't fully fit these criteria yet, should they still go ahead and apply? Yes, they can go ahead and apply. But one thing I'll say is when approaching VCs, because we get a lot of inbound, it's always best to put your best foot forward, you know, uh -huh. and just ensure that you are getting the most out of that interaction. So if you think that there's additional things you need to work on based on what I've talked about, it's always a good idea to do some brushing up and then approach. No, absolutely. So let's continue on that track. So what advice would you give to startups that are looking for investment? Maybe not necessarily with Future Africa, but they're out there um, looking yeah. to raise funds and to grow. What advice would you give? First of all, is that raising funds is not the ultimate. It's not a success metric. It's not. Are you sure? Because that's what everyone's not. touting these days. Well, so break it down and justify it for them. Yeah, I'm going to be honest and tell you that it's not. It just means that a couple of people own part of your company and can actually influence the direction of your company. So you want to think very carefully about if VC funding is the right type of funding that you need. Because yes. I know that it's nice to be in the media and it's nice to have raised money from all the top firms. But at the end of the day, this is a financial transaction. We could talk about mission and impact, but the bottom line is that we're looking to make outsized returns on the investment. That's the bottom line for every VC. So beyond the smiles, you know, beyond the wiring of the check, it means that you're obligated to deliver on certain things within a part-time frame. If you hadn't raised external funding and you missed milestone, nobody is going to, you know, attack you or anything. But you become answerable to your external investors. And there have actually been cases where um, founders are pushed out of their companies by investors. Yes. It's not very common. So you want to think very carefully about 
other sources of funding exist. You could get loans from a bank. You know, if you have, I know not everybody's privileged to, but if you have family and the and cost of capital on the cap on the continent is kind of high, so that is a barrier to to debt or you know bank loans. Yes, 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 yes. There is there's that admittedly, but if you have friends and family, also ask yourself, right? Do you need to do, does solving this problem? You know, does it need to be like a cooperation before you solve the problem? Or can you do this based on the revenue and money that you make from customers? And that's all, because the, re the reason people raise VC funding is to scale and grow very fast. Mm -hmm. So you wanna ask yourself if you actually need to grow that fast. You may feel like you want to, but question your motives. Why, why yes. are you trying to raise funding? That's always very important. That's the number one. I'm liking, yeah, I'm liking this conversation, Adnika, because I think a lot of people are getting confused, especially on the continent and in this era of, you know, you know, these young entrepreneurs and people are seeing these numbers about people raising funds. And now everybody's out here trying to raise, but I'm like, do you really need yeah. to raise? Like, what are you raising for? To do what? And first of all, do you really have a real business yet? Like, have you really focused on your customers exactly. and generating revenues and trying to see if you can do that organically before you try to raise the scale? Like, how quickly do you need to scale? So I feel like there needs to be a level setting of expectations around mm -hmm. raising capital because people see it now as sort of a status symbol to say, okay, I was able exactly. to raise this money. And they're not always quite clear about what the responsibilities are behind it. Like you mentioned, like yeah. somebody now owns a piece of your business and could potentially push you out of that business that you started, depending on, you know, what kind of arrangement you have with your investors. So there needs to be more demystification about and, and better understanding of what does this really mean? And is it for you right now? And when do you actually need it? Absolutely, yes. It's so important. And I tell whenever I'm on the panel or talking about VC um, investing, that's the first thing I mentioned. VC is not the right type of capital for everybody. There are certain expectations that come with it because guess what? VCs are also answerable to their limited partners. Mm -hmm. So it's not free cash. Even though we know that 90% of the companies fail, we are also trying to ensure that most of them don't fail and can deliver returns. So you just have to understand what are the motivations for a VC. They are not your friends. You guys might be friendly, but just know at the back of your head that it's a business transaction and there's a certain outcome that they expect. So alternatives, there are many grants, you know. If you're solving a, a critical problem, there are many challenges that offer grants up to a certain amount. There are accelerators and incubators that offer equity-free capital. I usually advise people to apply for those. I use them to hit critical milestones. And then you probably don't even need to approach the VCs. They'll come running after you. Yeah. And, you know, so the grants, that's kind of like my lane in terms of my experience having um, worked at 
a foundation for a number of years, giving grants mainly to um, applicants on the continent because the work of that foundation was focused on the continent. And, you know, especially at the early stage, grants are sort of like, yeah, you can't fully scale and grow a business depending on how far you want to scale and grow just on grants, but it's a great place to start. Yep. Early. It's a very great place. It's the most patient of capital (laughs) that there is. You don't have the pressure of having to perform quickly because you have to repay um, those funds or, you know, like if it were a um, debt or a loan that you have to repay, Mm -hmm. nobody owns anything in your business just yet as you're (laughs) growing it and trying to really figure out, you know, the structure of where it wants to go. So it's a great option that more people need to to really consider, I actually have a grant writing course because I'm like, after years of, of reading grants and just seeing the repeated mistakes so many people make when they apply for grants, I'm like, okay, how can I add value to this? So I'm like, I created a grant writing course to really provide that feedback, right? For someone who was on the other side reading these things, like here are some things that you should not do. And here are some things mm-hmm. that you should do that will get you from the reject pile to that acceptance pile. Just like you provide that feedback when people come to you looking for funding to say, okay, here are some areas that you might need to work on. You have a great idea, but there are some gaps. Absolutely. And, you know, pitching for grant and equity-free capital is a great way to learn to pitch without any of the consequences. Because like I said, not this is get a lot of inbound. For example, this month, over 200 startups applied for funding at Future Africa. I'm not going to take a look at those, many of those companies twice. As much as we try to give feedback, for some, you just have to skip over it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can't commit to giving everything feedback, which is mm-hmm. why it works to put your best foot forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. That when you're making your pitch, you're doing it as prepared as possible and you are actually able to get a conversation with the VC. But if you get to the conversation and you're not prepared enough, it's just a bad signal. And that might be difficult to uh, recover from. Can we talk about that, Adenike? So let's say somebody comes to you and they came unprepared. How detrimental mm-hmm. is it to have sort of that negative? Because in the investment space, people might talk, right? They might talk yeah. to each other. Yeah. And yeah. somebody might say, hey, you know, this pitch landed across my desk and they mentioned company name and founder. I'm like, oh, not this guy. We talked to him and X, Y, and Z. So how important is it for founders to not show up unprepared because news might get out about you. So put your best foot forward because people talk, people know each other. Yeah. I wouldn't even say it's because news might get out. I'll just say that you just run the risk of being dismissed. I may never have the opportunity to pitch again Mm. to that or except, you know, you're very lucky and then maybe you get introduced again but if you're using cold outreach, you may not get the opportunity to do it all over again. So there's a, dif- there's a difference between 
having areas of improvement, which every early stage company will, and investors are very prepared for that. And that's where you can give feedback and being completely unprepared. Unprepared means you can answer basic questions about your business, like how much revenue have you made? Tell me how much you made last month. Who is your target customer? Do you get what I mean? Yeah. If you're stumbling and fumbling over such questions, it tells me that you're not responsible enough to handle any money that I might give to you. You know, Adenike, I also think that some people, I think because, I'm not even sure if I want to say this. I think because sort of development has been going on for so long on the continent in particular, that I think some people might be confused between investment and, you know, something that, or even mm-hmm. a grant, for instance, where you don't necessarily have to pay it back. Like it's not free money. And like, you have to come with more than just your need for money to be yes. like that yes. need is, is not compelling enough because everybody who's come in to knock on the door has a need. They're not just coming to say hi. It's not a social call. Mm-hmm. So understanding, you know, that this is a different game being played at a whole different level. And mm-hmm. so no one's just going to give you a pass because guess what? There are lots of people competing for those same funds. Yes, and like how exactly. compelling are you when you put your foot forward so that they can say yes? Yes, exactly. Yes, what's on? No, so I want to transition the conversation a little bit to talk about um, the ecosystem. So I read recently that in 2020, Nigeria attracted 307 million in VC investments, leading the pack of the top eight countries that attract VC investments. According to the recent startup, um, the Startup Blink Startup Ecosystem Report, a notable increase in Africa is in Nigeria, which slept five spots to now rank 63rd globally. What is so attractive about Nigeria for investors besides the market size? I think it's the quality of founders, actually, because um, to be a Nigerian, you have to be really resilient. Like every other day, (laughs) there's something that's out there to mess up your business. But despite the odds, these founders keep showing up day after day. So I think it's just the quality of founders. Also, I think that we need to demarcate and in the startup world, demarcate between a Nigeria. So when they say Nigeria startups, what people usually mean is founders who are Nigeria. But a lot of- Those companies might not be headquartered in Nigeria at all. Oftentimes- Not even about being headquartered. Most of the time, Nigeria is just one of the markets that those companies operate in. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Which is why I don't understand the whole racing VC investments by country thing. Because for majority of the companies in our portfolio, Nigeria is definitely not the only market that they operate in. And it might be today, but they all have plans to expand into other countries in their roadmap. So Maybe they're just than- looking at, the, um, I guess, where the founders are from our base exactly yeah. yeah so i think it will be based on their resilience and uh, ability to keep showing up and the strengths that they demonstrate so what needs to happen in the african funding ecosystem to grow the entrepreneurship ecosystem 
continent-wide, not just in a few countries that attract VC funding, but to sort of liberalize that a little bit more to include more countries? I know there are a number of factors that go into play, um, but what are your thoughts? So I don't think anybody deliberately excludes countries, right? Does that make sense? It's, mm -hmm. If there's a market and if there's people actively building stuff in that market, and remember what I said, ultimately it's a financial transaction and VCC, the opportunity for outsized returns in that, that market, they would invest. So I think it's just a factor of time. Even five, six years ago, Nigeria wasn't on this level. Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think with time, other markets will develop to build solutions that can deliver the type of financial returns that um, investors require. So what are some things in terms of an enabling environment for investment? What are some things that either governments need to do or entrepreneurs within that ecosystem need to do to strengthen that enabling environment to attract more funding? If well, that's a goal. Be, exactly, to be honest, I'm not a fan of, you know, I know that there like infrastructural challenge, but again, like I said, it differs from market to market. So mm -hmm. in Nigeria, that might be regulatory risk, you know? A lot of people don't want to invest in companies here because anything can happen. There's regulatory risk. The situation might be different in Ghana. So like I said, I just feel like there will never be a per perfect, um, perfect, there will never be perfect conditions. Granted, we don't have some things that make it seamless for companies to operate like you do in other countries in the world. But some of the best innovation has also come out of that. For example, in the US, I don't think that there's like instant bank transfers, but that's, that's something that we have here in Africa. Mm -hmm. Also, I, like I said, another thing is patience and the time and, you know, aside from the government and infrastructure, you're also working with people's psyche. Six, five, six years ago when Paystack started, mm -hmm. it was almost heard of for Nigerians to shop online using their car. Do you, do you understand what I mean? It wasn't yeah. a habit that a lot of people But with time and with patience and with a lot of education, it's now common. People actually go to banks to request for their cards. They don't just use them at ATM. They are comfortable buying stuff online with their cards. Mm -hmm. And now businesses um, are set up to be able to accept card payments and such. So I think the, the most important thing is patience. It's still day zero here. Think of China in the very, very early days. I think that's where we are now. Well, things are moving in the right direction. Adenike, thank yes. you so much. Step by step. Yes, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. I am so glad that we finally were able to get it done. And as I had hoped for and expected, you brought just a wealth of information 
that I think people who listen to this podcast will really be able to derive value from because that's something that I seek to to spark in these conversations. So thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners for joining another episode of the WTF podcast. We would love to hear your feedback on the show and how we could improve. So make sure that you email us at wheresthefunding at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest or sponsor the podcast, email us as well. We are on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, To help us grow, make sure that you subscribe, rate, review, share your favorite episodes, all that good stuff. And follow us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook at Agazella Learn Launch Scale. And follow me, your host, Michelle McKenzie, on LinkedIn. And make sure you join us for the next episode. 